been in this series uh, to start the new year about resolutions and resolve, and what does it mean to have endurance and perseverance? What does it mean to have faith that finishes? And um, what we've been doing is kind of figuring out what can you do. And so what we do today is then back out of that a little bit and say, now what's already been done for you, and where can you rest? Because in our uh, Western world, what we tend to think is that uh, the way to get things done is to do more. And scripturally, what we've found is that uh, true finishing and true peace is actually not found in the doing, it's found in the resting. And so those of us who long to live a life uh, that is a faithful life, those of us who long to finish the faith walk well, would be well advised not to simply look at what do I do, but where do I rest? So what we're going to do to begin is read out of the book of Hebrews. We've been in Hebrews 12 for the entire month. And uh, what we're going to do now is back up to Hebrews 4 for one day. Last day of the series, we're going to just drop back a little bit because Hebrews 4 provides a little bit of the foundation of where we've been. The Bible says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you found to have fallen short of it. We have the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed... Enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on, uh, on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he had spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, since those who were formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as the passage already quoted, Today if I hear your voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom he must give account. So if we're talking about rest today, that's a lot. We could probably spend the next four weeks on that passage and, and sort of unpacking that, and it's a lot, and we're not going to spend four weeks. What we're going to, to unpack is this piece going, those of us as believers, we are, we're sort of based in this idea that if I just do more, if I just work harder, if I have more works, if I can just keep going and push through, th- then maybe I'll win the prize. Maybe then I'll find the, the other side of the rainbow. And, and this was true for... The Jews in the first century, this is true for us now. We live in a society very much still that is, uh, it prides itself on being overworked. Why, why do people always announce how busy they are? Well, because it's a status symbol. If I'm busy, I must be important. And if I'm important, then people will think I'm, in, I'm really cool and, and that's what I really want. So any chance I have to tell you how busy I am, I'm going to tell you I'm super busy. You hear it all the time. If you mention a 40-hour work week these days, people will scoff. Universally. I'm uh, looking for a job. I want to work, you know, 40 hours a week, that sort of thing. People go, 40 hours a week? What is it, 1950? 40 hours a week was for the, no, now you got to work more. You have to work longer. You have to work harder. That's how you get ahead in the world is you spend 60 hours, 80 hours. 
I worked the job at a Fortune 500 oil company in San Antonio. And uh, my wife will corroborate the story that I would show up. Um, I worked in the legal department doing pipeline work. And I'd show up at the office at 6 a.m. And I would leave the office at 5 p.m. And I was the last one there and the first one to leave every day. But everyone else in the department was there before me and everyone else left after me. And I could feel their eyeballs burning a hole in my head as I left the office at 5 o'clock. But I had a baby at home and I wasn't going to miss it. And yet my 55, 60 hours a week was insufficient for the company culture that had been set. Because as they all saw, if I work later, if I work longer, if I sleep less, well, the stock price keeps going up. And so if we can just keep cranking out more, maybe it'll all work out. And what I realized in that moment was I was in a really toxic culture that didn't know it was toxic. It was an overworked culture. It was an overburdened culture. And it was a culture that would eventually collapse. And yet, last one in and first one out, I was working 11 and 12-hour days and didn't seem to matter. One of the reasons for this is this, this 60-hour work week is this badge of honor. One of the reasons is technological advances have allowed us to take work with us everywhere. Right? Most people these days, uh, their, their entire office is in their phone. And so you can go and escape from the office, and the office goes with you. And so it still buzzes, and it still rings, and people are still expecting things. The whole world is accessible to you through your uh, device, through your phone, through your computer, through a cable running into your house. All of work follows you now. And this isn't just work as in like my vocational work, but this is the work we do on our reputation and the work we do in the striving. And my Facebook, if that is my work, to grow my status through showing other people how great I am, that's everywhere with me. And it colors every moment of my existence because every moment is now an opportunity to raise my status. Maybe more than any other, though, in addition to those things, our identity is still based in what we do in our culture. Our identity is still based in what we do. It's the number one question in small talk. If you meet somebody, start recognizing what the first thing you ask somebody or someone asks you when you meet them. If you're introduced to somebody at a random party or a Christmas event or you're, you're just kind of with them, they'll say, oh, hi, my name is Chuck. What do you do? Or, hey, I'm Mary. What do you do? It's the first question you want to know. It's what do you do? Where do you live? You know, my faith? No, I'm not, I didn't ask about that. Do you have any... No, I'm not families later, but what do you do? The other interesting thing is I've made a point to try to uh, not ask that question. I try to ask something more along the lines of, um, tell me about yourself, which is a really interesting experiment to run. If you say, tell me about yourself, then it's up to them to decide what do they want to tell you first. And nine times out of ten, the first thing I get is, well, I work here. And then there's a litany of other things that have to do with their life. But you always lead with work. Because for one way or another in our society, that is, the, um, that is the measure. That's the status check. That's the identification we want to hold out first. Because what you do evidently says more about you than anything else. So what happens is often in our society, we overwork. And then for young parents, you get home and then we overparent. Why do we do that? Children show the world our status. Children are a really easy uh, social media that we figured out decades ago before social media existed. Because if I can do this right thing with my children, then the world will see my children and they will assign to me righteousness based on my children's goodness. And so we go home and we overparent. Writing to the Jews, the writer of Hebrews references entering the promised land. He's, he's refer- referencing this idea that when uh, the Hebrews were wandering in the desert, 
that the rebellious never entered the rest of God. They never entered the promised land, the land of milk and honey. They never got there. And what he's setting up as rest is this almost declaration of freedom. That those who were identified by slavery, those who were identified by their work, never actually entered into the place where they could be identified with just belonging to God. Because that's what the promised land indicated. They were out of slavery, but what was their new, what was their new job? They were belonging to God. They were children of God and God's place in God's land. And it, it, was, it was from work to just being. And for some, that was too much. And they needed to go back to work. Verse 4 of what we read, it said God rested. That was from Genesis 2, that God rested. He creates the world and he rests. God didn't need a nap. God wasn't tired. What we can read when we read Genesis 2 is that God looked at what he'd created and he said, it is good and it is good and it is good. And he sits back and he takes a satisfied breath. God, in a sense, in Genesis 2, takes a contented exhale as he looks upon what he's done. Is that a practice in our life? To sit back with a contented exhale every so often, to take a satisfied breath along the journey. Or is every summit we reach simply base camp for the next summit that we're on? Why do so many vacations leave us weary? Do we lay down the work of our lives? Do we lay down the striving for status? Do we lay down the work? Do we put the email away? Do we put away the the identity building, reputation building work of our days? I would say most often, no, we just shift the venue of where it's taking place. Like when we went to Disney World last year, there were parts of it that were truly like wonderful and truly restful and deeply joyful. Uh, I remember we had this African meal in the kind of, well, it's totally fake Africa, but in their, in their fake Africa world. But they imported actual African people. So most of the workers, they have where they're from, and we spoke to them about these places we lived, and they, we found a girl that was serving in a, one of the restaurants who um, was from the neighborhood that we used to live in. So we have this neat conversation. We're eating this food that is, is very much authentic, and we're, we're kind of transported to this place, and we have this, like, soul-restful moment. Other things were less restful. The scurry to get to the proper place to take the proper picture because that's the place where you have to take the picture when you're at Disney World. Why? Well, that's what everybody expects. The castle's there. You need the picture. Get the family. Hurry up. Look happy, right? You ever been to that family photo? You're taking your Christmas card pictures and the kids are acting up and, and the, you know, usually the mom, because mom has to play bad guy in those moments, and mom goes, look happy for the picture. People will think we're happy. We're well-adjusted. Get that frown off your face, wipe the tears away, smile, everybody, and they take the picture, and then you go back to just war with each other. This is really normal, right? There's not great joy in that. There's, there's war. We scuffle over things, and we wonder, why, why don't I feel at rest in my soul? Why don't I feel like I can rest along the journey? Identity is, is subtle, but it, it's, it's in there. That whole look, look happy, kids, so people can see how happy we are. We chuckle at it, but it's real. Tim Keller says there's an eternal murmur that says we need to prove ourselves. Within our souls, there's an eternal murmur, this kind of just gentle murmuring that says you need to prove yourself. You need to show people. It's the same thing that says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not acceptable. I'm not quite there. I haven't figured it out. I got to show them. And so we overwork we oversell ourselves. 
but it's not just to prove to other people, but it's to prove to ourselves. I am worth something. I am valuable. I can do this. We inch closer to an imaginary and, and frankly, unreachable line of acceptance. Because every time you inch closer to it, the line moves with you. What we read, verse 13, said that there's this return that under God, nothing is hidden. Everything becomes uncovered all the way to the heart. He's talking about a return to nakedness. This is another reference back to Genesis. God sees through to the heart of man in its naked state. Which is Adam and Eve who were in the garden. Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're in God's perfect rest. They're in perfect fellowship with God. There is no sin in the world and they are naked. And yet later we find them hiding and knitting fig leaves together to cover their nakedness and their shame. Why? What happened? They turned from God, they left his rest, and they started to climb the ladder to being their own gods. There was the one tree not to eat from, the knowledge of good and evil, and that was the one they wanted because they had sort of been tricked in the idea that if you grow in that, maybe you kind of become a little god yourself. And so what happens is they go from living in perfect rest to to toiling away in the bushes, knitting together fig leaves. Because they were beginning to try to find self-sufficiency. If we have that, we don't need him. And what they're left with is a deep inadequacy and a deep insecurity. They weren't created to be God. So when they start trying to carry the weight of God, it all breaks down. I wasn't created to be God. And so as I try to become God in my own life, as I try to be the Lord of my own life, it breaks down. And I break down under it. And what I'm left with is not a sense that I'm a little closer to being God. It's, It's the sense that I'm in no way created to be this and I'm totally inadequate. When we try to be God in our own life, we find ourselves too small for the task which then leads us to more inadequacy and insecurity. And so we spend our lives on fig leaves. We, we spend our lives on fig leaves. And yours look different than mine, but we spend our lives knitting together things to try to cover the shame and the nakedness we feel over our sin. Trying to cover over our inadequacy and our insecurities, we try to cover those over with the fig leaves of life whether that's money, your status, or whatever that is in your world. But we have to recognize them as such. We have to recognize that there are times when we have attempted to become our own savior, our own God, and in doing so, that inadequacy we feel is what sends us reaching deeper and deeper and deeper to try to justify ourselves. So we spend our lives on fig leaves. We spend our lives bulking up our reputation so that we can trick ourselves into thinking that we're actually a pretty decent God. Or, even if we've seen through that lie, we maybe at least want to show others that we're closer than they are. And God sees through that. Scripture said God sees through to the heart of man. It also says that there's still a Sabbath for the people of God. There's still a Sabbath for the people of God. There's a day to rest from your works. There's a moment to to let go of the striving. I would say, remixing this, I would say there's a day to rest from the sowing of fig leaves in your life. Because there's plenty of people who take a day off of work, but that day isn't a day of rest. That's a day of striving for other things. And let me not be misunderstood to say that work is bad. Like we should all be working eight hours a week and just resting together. And Like work is good. The Bible applauds work. That diligence is uh, something that's wonderful. But the reason behind a lot of our diligence, the reason behind a lot of our work is, is just skewed. It's off. 
So, so much of our work is then self-justifying. And if our work is really just sowing fig leaves to cover our inadequacy, to show that we matter to other people, to earn enough that we feel more important so that others can see my goodness or, or to power up the status level, if that's, if that's what my work is about, if that's what my life is about, if that's what my recreation is about, if that's what my days are about, then we're never going to be satisfied because the work will never stop. Because true rest only occurs in satisfaction and security. You go through all of scripture and you see true rest only occurs in satisfaction and security. A good example of this, last night my uh, five-year-old runs into my room. She's had a nightmare. So she's restless. Because she feels insecure and unsafe. And what does she do? She turns to the one place that she knows that she can find real security, the one who will look under the bed and is willing to open the closet and see that it's a jacket with a shadow on it, and it's not a monster, and we can go through that whole thing, and only then does she have the security to rest again. But she goes to that source of her security. And the same is true of you and I. When we feel insecure, what we attempt to do is, is fig leaf it over, and what God has wired us to do is to go and seek the Father. So we're talking about sleep. Consider sleep. Sleep is a great example when we talk about a lack of rest in our culture. I've been reading this book, which uh, if you know anything about me, I won't stop talking about it until everybody's heard about it. So this will be the last time you have to hear about this. But this book called Why We Sleep. It's, it's 30 years of sleep research all like dumped into one book. And it's totally fascinating. A few of the things I've already learned, a few of the things that you need to know. The average American sleeps 6.8 hours a night. By show of hands, how many people get more than 6.8 hours of sleep per night? And how many get less than 6.8 hours of sleep a night? Yeah, it's like 60, 40. That's down. I mean, it's on a consistent downward trend for the last century, but specifically the last 20 years has really been taking a nosedive. Our sleep is, is getting less. The science is clear as they've done all these lab, re- uh, lab studies and the research and the clinical trials, and they've walked through people for decades now. It's, it's really clear that sleep has a really clear contraindication to health. The, the body needs more sleep. It was wired for this sort of eight hours, and it's really strange. And the scientists even say, we don't really totally get it. But we've seemed to have been, um, they use the word designed, and they don't mean by a god, but we know it to be that. We seem to have been designed to need this restoration period. That sleep is not the time when your body actually goes blank. Sleep is actually the most active brain time of, um, of your day. It's the time of total restoration. It is the immunobuilder of your life. And what the lack of sleep does, and they've done all these studies, it demolishes your immune system. So someone who sleeps six hours a night on average has double the risk of cancer as someone who sleeps eight. It's a key determinant in Alzheimer's. It disrupts blood sugar. So someone who sleeps an average of six hours a night over a one-month span tips into a pre-diabetic mode, no matter what their health, other health indicators. It's a key indicator of cardiovascular disease and stroke. It actually um, increases weight gain because in sleep, you uh, get a release of a hormone that works as an appetite satisfier, like it's, it tells you that you're satisfied. And so when you don't sleep, the reason that you're eating um, things you shouldn't be eating at 1 a.m. is because that thing in you that's supposed to be getting satisfied isn't getting satisfied in your sleep. Over and over again, there's all these trials and all these tests, and some people, God bless you, are just wired for five hours a night, and we can all be jealous. But for a lot of us, what this is saying is, is it's just bad news. They did one study where they did a, a 10-day period, and they had all these folks in a lab, and, and they did a 10-day study where they let this one group slept eight hours a night, 
and this one group slept six hours a night. So not two hours a night, not three. For 10 days, they got six hours a night of sleep. And when they came out, on average, the group that had slept six hours a night had the cognitive and motor, like physical motor ability of somebody who, the exact same as somebody who blows a 1.0 on a breathalyzer. Meaning, the person who slept six hours a night for 10 days, on average, came out like a legally drunk person when they woke up. And so societally, we back up from this, and, and the point the book, the, the, the scientist makes is he goes, look, some people are going to, some people were great at it, a lot of people were really terrible at it, but it's, it's a thing. We have to be able to acknowledge that we live in a society where that person is actually cheered for sleeping less and working more, and what we're actually cheering is they're showing up to work basically drunk every day, because they don't have the ability with a restorative thing that they need. So we bring back out the badge of honor that says, hey, you got in at 6 this morning to the office? Why, why so late? You're leaving at 5? Family? What's that about? Sometimes the simple willingness to sleep points to something else. Eugene Peterson said, in preparation for the day, I go to sleep to get out of the way for a while. In preparation for the day, I go to sleep to get out of the way for a while. Eugene Peterson understood that the Jewish day starts at sunset. Your, your day and my day, we feel like the calendar switches over at midnight and our day really starts whenever we wake up in the morning. The Jewish day starts at sunset. And so like tonight at 6 o'clock, it will be Monday in the Jewish world. So what's the first thing that a Jewish person does in their day? They sleep. And that's a profound paradigm switch that you and I, the first thing we do, well, I don't know about you, I can put myself... Uh, in the light and say, man, nine times out of ten, the first thing I do is whatever I need to do for me. And when my day gets started, my first eight hours, you know what that looks like? That's my agenda and my priority, and that's, that's that's what I do. And this was saying, biblically, the first thing we do as a people is we sleep, which is we relinquish control and we get out of the way for a while and let God do the work to set up what the rest of our day might look like. That there's security in rest is how the Jewish day starts. That we release control. And so everyone struggles with this to some degree. So where then is true rest? If we're talking about true rest. We keep reading in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and is yet without sin. So let us draw near, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. It had just said the word of God is alive and it is piercing, it is exposing us in our, in our nakedness, in our inability to find rest in ourselves. And then it says what? The Bible has a high priest who has grace and mercy. And so we rest in Christ because Christ went through what we went through, lived it perfectly, and then gave up his rest for us. It's saying that we don't have to pay the price for our sin because Jesus paid it already. That because Jesus was stripped naked on the cross, I might be covered. Because he lost rest, I might have it. And so we have to find that place where we go, even though life kind of does this thing where we are stripped bare to be shown that we are inadequate and we're insufficient, that there is still rest to be found and isn't in working harder to build more fig leaves to cover more flaws. It's actually in turning and seeing that Christ is where rest lies. 
Jesus was cut off so that we could be brought in. And when he died in, in John 19.30, his famous last words, he said, it is finished. And we've talked about this. It is finished. This word, the tetelestai is the word. And it's a strange word because it's in a tense that we don't have in English. And it's the blending of two tenses. The first tense is the present tense and the, the other tense is the aortist tense. And why this matters is it has two meanings in one word. The first meaning in that very exact moment when Jesus says, it is finished. And he hangs his head and he dies. He's saying, in this exact moment, it is finished. Entirely done right now. And then the aortis tense, the other tense says, not only is it finished now in this exact moment, but it is finished permanently and forevermore. And so it's got this future promise included in the present moment. And what does that word actually mean? It's the same word that the priests would use in the temple when you would bring them the sacrificial lamb at the Passover. And they would have to check the lamb to see if it was unblemished and worthy of the sacrifice for the penance for your sins. They would bring the lamb in. And the priest would look over the lamb and make sure it's unblemished. And if the lamb was sufficient, the priest would say, tete lestai, and pass the lamb on, and the family would be clean again. So when the lamb of God is brought to the cross, he, the high priest of himself, says, tete lestai, the unblemished lamb is enough, it is finished. It's the same thing that was written on promissory notes and on debts that merchants would hold. When you would bring your debt and you would finally pay your debt off, they would write tete lestai across the lending papers. That means paid in full, the debt is covered, you're free to go. And so Jesus in his last moment looks upon our lives and he, before he hangs his head, he manages to get out this guttural phrase tete lestai that says that debt you owe is paid in full. As if he was saying, rest. That the lamb has been slain and it has been taken care of. That the debt has been paid and you owe no more. There is nothing else to do. There's nothing else to gain. I've done it. And so Christ on the cross offers ultimate rest. And he says, tete lestai. It is paid in full. It is finished. It is taken care of. You are clean. Which is why when we look at the words of Jesus and we see him say, come to me in Matthew 11, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We understand that is not rest from the rat race. That is not rest from the weariness of the world. That is rest on a whole different plane of existence. That is Jesus not offering us a day off. It is Jesus offering us himself. We break down rest into, I need a day off because I worked six days this week. And Jesus says, rest is not a day off. It's not an hour away. It's not a vacation. Rest is me. And I've given myself for you. And you can have me if you want me. Rest is not found in what you bring me or what you do for me or what you sing to me. Jesus says, rest is found in me. Nothing less. In this way, Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath. When, he, when the Bible says that the Sabbath still exists for the people of God, the Bible is saying that Jesus is here and Jesus exists for the people of God. That, yeah, rest and rhythm and those things matter and those things are important in the Christian walk, but the ultimate Sabbath is not another day off. It's not, do we take off Saturday or Sunday or should I, should I mow the lawn today or should I rest? It's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Christ, the ultimate rest provided for all, in whom God can look freely upon and say, it is good. No more work needs to be done. 
In Jesus, we find safety and security. In Jesus, we know what it means to be satisfied. In Jesus, we can lay down the self-justifying work and the reputation-building striving, and we rest. We're God's children. Our identity can't be improved. Our status can't be lifted. If you're adopted royalty, you're prince or princess of an eternal king. You're as high as you're ever going to get on the ladder. And yet God does look down and see us weary from effort and worn out by religion. Striving in this this thing rooted in, in this shadow of unbelief. I know the Bible says that Jesus is my rest, but maybe if I just try this too. Jesus repeats the offer, come to me. Find true rest. If we're going to find faith that finishes, if we're going to be people of faith that walk the journey, we're going to be people that continue on the hard path when it gets difficult, people that overcome hurdles, people that fight through adversity, if we're going to be a resolute people, a people that finish what we start, what it takes for us is not to map out the marathon course and then run as hard as we can, although that's part of the journey. Ultimately, the finish line has already been met. And we have to realize if we're going to be people who have a faith that finished, then we have to look at the one who said, it is finished. And only when we recognize that we're already on the other side of the line do we have the freedom to live out the life he's challenged us to. So the question as we close is, do you have true rest? If you're honest about yourself, if you took a, an account of your life, do you spend days in true rest? Do you spend moments in true rest? Do you invest your heart in true rest, in, in Christ? Or are we spending our lives sewing together fig leaves, covering over everything else that we realize to be inadequate? When Jesus invites us to enter into his rest, he's not offering to give us better routines or a new Christian living book that'll help us get over the hump. Jesus is offering us a true lived out belief in his last words, and it is finished. He's offering that if we would apply that to our lives, if we would see ourselves in light of that moment, that we might then trust in a sovereign God to do what a sovereign God does, which is call his children home, carry them along, and then allow them to participate in the life-giving, life-transforming journey of faith. But it's faith on the other side of that finish line. Will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are a people that long to finish. We long to finish well, and uh, you've wired us with desire, and you've wired us with ambition, and you've wired us with diligence. Father, I pray that where we apply that wrongly, where we've chased our own salvation in our work or in our status, God, in our success, Father, forgive us for that. Convict us and change our hearts. God, we pray that we would be a people that would be able to rest in your beautiful sacrifice for us. 
that we would rest in that moment on the cross where you said it is good and it is finished and the debt is paid in full and that we are now covered. Father, the silence makes us uncomfortable. To slow down gives us anxiety. Father, I pray that we would do those things long enough to hear your voice and to be reminded that it is finished. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue to worship, we have an opportunity to take communion, to be reminded that it was Jesus' giving of his body and his blood that finished it for us. So when we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, we remember and we're reminded that we're consoled or comforted, that we're motivated. Whatever it is that your heart needs today, I pray that you would find it on the table, that you would remember that Christ, in finishing it for us, has freed us up to run with beauty and grace and freedom so that we would take the goodness he's given us and in the beauty and the grace of Christ, be able to give it away far and wide. So as uh, we play, you can come. Come.